Warren Mooney is among the most fascinating, intelligent Wiccans I've ever come across on the internet, and I discovered her via her YouTube channel, where she explores what it's like to actually live in both the ritualistic world of a practicing Wiccan and the very modern world of a content creator with a day job. Now, in my experience, many people in the modern world who are making sort of esoteric content tend to shy away from the fact that they are in the modern world. Thorn instead dives headlong into the weirdness of that situation, offering videos with titles like, I'm not a professional witch, and that's fine with me, don't put other witches on pedestals, and experiences being a pagan content creator, among many others. Now, we spoke a few months back, and after a lot of technical drama that is now thankfully resolved, by the way, be very careful which podcast hosting provider you choose, I am thrilled to release our conversation as it ranks not just among the best on this podcast and YouTube channel, but also as one of the more grounded esoteric conversations I've ever had the good fortune to have. We explore a really wide variety of topics. Generally, all of what we talked about circles around the convergence between what we might call modernity or modern life and Wicca or witchcraft broadly. Now, Thorne wrote Traditional Wicca, A Seeker's Guide for Llewellyn, with whom she has another upcoming book tentatively titled Next Level Witchcraft. You can find the link to the first book down in the show notes or description, depending on where you are watching or listening to this. You'll also find all sorts of links to her other work down there. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Thorne Mooney. like to start I have so many questions for you because <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated with your YouTube um, oh, and yeah. I absolutely love your your voice in in, in the community uh, so the first thing I want just to introduce listeners and, and watchers if maybe who, who don't aren't as familiar with your work how did you get sort of uh, interested in witchcraft let's start there sure um... I'm kind of a stereotype. Uh, it was 1996 and the craft came out and I was an alienated pre-adolescent girl and witchcraft was cool, right? Like witchcraft is cool. Um, and I think that there was just so much floating around in media in the mid nineties and into the early two thousands that was targeted at my demographic. And, you know, I just rolled right into it along with a lot of other people in my cohort, I think. Um, just like today, you know, there's, I think media plays a real impact on getting people involved. Um, and I started reading books and things about the books just really appealed to me for a variety of reasons that would change over time. Um, and here I am like accidentally still doing it. My phase never ended. So. <laughs> <Sorry> uh, <now. laughs> so, so getting into it, like the, the way you did via the craft and that whole era, which was really, I think we can agree the golden era of cinema. <laughs> oh, and music and, and music, music, my friend. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, Evanescence. Please and thank you. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, do you think, you talk about this a lot on your YouTube channel. Um, do you think if witchcraft in general, but we can boil it down and get more specific, like and say Wicca, um, do you think if it loses its subversive nature, it loses something super important to it? Like if it's mainstream and hip, 
has it lost something? Um, I have, I'm, that's a comp, that's a more complicated question, I think, than people give it credit to sometimes, because on a gut level, I want to say yes. I want to say that witch, witchcraft broadly, not just Wicca, um, but I want to say on a gut level that witchcraft broadly is about, it's about subversion, it's about transgression, it's about boundary crossing. Um, all of those things are built into it, I think, kind of no matter what specific sort of witchcraft you're talking about. But at the same time, I think we neglect the many ways through which one can be subversive and what it means for something to be subversive and transgressive, which I think whether it makes us comfortable or not is gonna look different for all of us. And I think about like my own middle school experiences um, as, as a young girl, um, I felt like I was up to something that what you know, I didn't know the words at the time, but something that was um, other, right? Um, that made me special and that appealed to me. And my own experience of being marginalized up to that point was like, I was the weird kid, I was fat, all that stuff that's very, it's very childish, okay? Um, but that didn't diminish my experience of that marginalization and subsequently the pleasure in subverting it. Um, and I think that witchcraft, that's why witchcraft has such a wide appeal because whether or not it's right or whether or not it's justified, I think most people feel marginalized at times. They feel powerless at times. People come to witchcraft because um, they're lacking a voice. This is a, a way to have power in their, in their personal lives, in their financial lives. Uh, people come to witchcraft because they belong to genuinely marginalized communities, like queer, like queer communities, um, impoverished communities. These are all like historically um, significant reasons why people begin practicing, not just witchcraft, but any kind of magic. Um, but on the ground, like again, through my childish eyes, the experience of being marginalized, there isn't a checklist of like whether or not you have that experience. Like my feet, my 13 year old self felt marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, even though like I was at a, I was at a private school, I was at a fancy school. Um, my, my, my classmates were overwhelmingly white, like on any checklist, I was not marginalized. But in my head, I was. Um, and I think that's a conversation that we don't always have when we're talking about the subversiveness of witchcraft. You don't actually, you don't actually have to, to be marginalized, you just have to feel it. Mm. I think that makes us uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um. That's fascinating. Wow, what an answer. That is not what I was expecting at all. I have so, a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do you like personally feel um, when, when you come across sort of blatant attempts at popularity and commercial success in this space? What's your, is there, is there a, a visceral reaction that happens in you as, as a practitioner and author and, and uh, you know, a content creator in this space? And then is, is there an argument to say then that these sort of commercial efforts, even though they may not be uh, coming from an authentic place, might somehow be good overall in that they attract people who are feeling marginalized? Yeah, I definitely think you can make that argument. Um, I have very mixed feelings because on the one hand, you're right, I do have a very visceral reaction. Like I, let's say, 
you know, I'm making something up right now. Like, let's say like a new TV show is coming out and it features witches and the previews, like, it's very clear that this isn't a witchcraft that is um, something that contemporary practitioners are actually doing. It might even be harmful. It depicts people doing reprehensible things or whatever. Um, on, on a visceral level, I do feel things like anger or disgust or frustration just because so many of the times when things like that happen, the, the creators of those things have not consulted, um, they haven't gotten input from pagan practitioners or witchcraft practitioners or occult practitioners. They're sort of looking at the sexy stuff, throwing that in there for effect. And I think it's very natural for a practitioner, whether we're talking about Wicca or witchcraft or hoodoo, like hoodoo gets put in this position all the time. Um, um, voodoo and um, ceremonial magic traditions, like every now and then you'll see um, treated this way too, where they just take the parts that are appealing. Um, and I think it's natural to be offended by that. Um, but for me personally, when I'm done feeling offended, the fact of the matter is that I always consume those things anyway. Like I, if I'm really honest with myself, I saw all of the controversy in pagan communities about like chilling adventures of Sabrina. Um, I mean, the craft, I know somebody through open circles um, who came to the craft in, um, in the eighties in New York city. And he would tell me stories about the protests that he would go to, to protest the craft. Like his coven went to movie theaters and they protested the craft in New York city. And now it's like this great cult movie that practitioners are like, yes, the craft. But when the craft came out, it was very controversial in pagan spaces. Um, I remember distinctly in uh, one of my very first books, To Ride a Silver Broomstick by Silver Ravenwolf, she mentions the film, The Wicker Man. Um, this is long before Nick Cage. Um, <laughs> and she talks about how abhorrent the movie is. And she doesn't really tell you why, but the implication is that this isn't really paganism. Like Mayday doesn't really look like that. And wasn't I shocked to watch the movie for the first time in high school and love it. <laughs> so I think... Um, it's, it's, that's probably a normal experience to like immediately experience repulsion and then upon reflection or maybe without reflection, we find ourselves still enjoying the thing anyway. Right. Um, and I think it's because like sometimes that stuff still appeals to us, even if we don't want it to, like, I know that the witchcraft in Sabrina isn't real. Like we all know that, but I think sometimes we wish it was yeah and that's why it appeals um and i do think that popular media can serve a positive function in drawing people in yeah it's definitely true that the majority of the people who are coming to witchcraft right now just like in any other period in time the majority of them will not be witches in five years maybe right. not even in one year but a lot of them will be um when i again when i came in my generation was very heavily criticized. Like we were posers, we were just in it because of practical magic and we had teen witch books and everybody said that we weren't gonna be there. And like, here we are, not all of us, but a lot of us. And I think that we do, particularly young people, particularly young women, we do a disservice to them when we just write them off as being shallow. Mm. Yeah. And even, even too, for people who maybe don't stick around as practitioners, 
you got to think that there's at least some sympathy or empathy embedded in them uh, because they enjoyed this media so much, you know, yeah. like, like that they will find it more uh, easy, easier to relate to uh, witches and Wiccans and all manner of uh, metaphysical practitioners just because they enjoyed Sabrina. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's a strange thing, but I think you're probably right about that. It's, it's weird. I find myself having this, this conversation about Salem, which I know you said you've not been to Salem, correct? I haven't. It is one of my many crimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Salem is kind of, um, kind of like the, the epicenter of this argument, right? It's like, if you could take this argument, turn it into a town, that would be Salem, uh, because it has all these all these different representations of witchcraft. First off, but there's this sort of like underbelly of of this all feels weird that this town is even here. Feels weird because the reason it's here is because 19 people were hanged mm -hmm. and and one guy was crushed to death by stones. Uh, yeah, by, by from fanatical Christianity gone rampant and politics and all this really gross stuff but out of it has bloomed this you know kind of like the east coast mecca or at least it was for a time of um of uh, a certain brand of wicca um yeah. it's strange though because i found myself having this this same thing because you know honest practitioners people who are looking for real representations of these things go to salem and I, they end up being disappointed a lot mm -hmm. because it's so commercial um, and then I find myself coming around to the other side of it, which is like, well, yeah, it's commercial, but how are, how else are you going to get people in the door? Like the aesthetic, I watched one of your videos and I was, I was really charmed by it about, uh, you'll have to remind me on the title. It was something like the, the, uh, witch aesthetic is bullshit or something like that. <laughs> Screw your witchy aesthetic. I'm yes. Holding, I'm holding a loaf of bread and having feelings. Yes. <laughs> I loved that. Uh, <laughs> Because the, the, the whole point of it was really that, you know, the idea of a witch aesthetic as being dark and moody and, mm -hmm. and broody is kind of like, you know, it's an aesthetic, meaning that it's not essential. Um, but it kind of gets treated as aesthetic. Are you still, that video came out a few years ago, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd even have to rewatch it. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but I, I have kind of like everything, I feel like I'm telling you. I've got some mixed feelings because... I dig the dark aesthetic, you know, like I, I'm into it too. I mean, I'm a grown ass woman and I still buy clothes from Hot Topic sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but like I get it. Um, and part of me is really excited that since witchcraft is trendy, it's now a lot easier for me to get goth clothing and dark makeup and like cute t-shirts with like witchy and occult themes. Like it's so much easier now. Um, like it's kind of cool that you can go to major retailers and get certain things that we couldn't get as teenagers like you couldn't you couldn't go get incenses and you know little like you, you just couldn't go to a store and buy those things um and now you can now you can go to a mall and get crystals and tarot decks and you know we can have a long conversation about like the ethics behind that and whether or not that's okay but from the perspective of a new practitioner, especially a young practitioner, um, and somebody who doesn't have a lot of resources, you know, most pagans and witches don't have the money to travel and they don't have right. the money to go to events 
and they don't have a local coven that they can go to to support. Like they don't have those things. So maybe the only thing that that 17 year old in Iowa or wherever has is, you know, kind of the quirky store at the mall where they can buy crystals and sage. Um, and that becomes a valuable resource for them. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, so the aesthetic in many ways makes life a little bit easier for many of us um, where it gets um, problematic, I think, is the assumption that if you are not living up to that aesthetic, then you're somehow doing it wrong. Um, my particular brand of witchcraft is Wicca. I'm, an I'm, I'm part of an initiatory tradition of Wicca. And Wicca had kind of its heyday, especially in the 90s. I think that was the first kind of witchcraft that a lot of people got exposed to. That was the word people knew. Um, but like Wicca definitely is kind of in this moment where it's not trending anymore. Like there, there are other witchcrafts that are coming to the fore and there are other voices speaking for other traditions, which is awesome. Um, but part of the backlash around that has been the accusation that like witchcraft isn't, or Wicca isn't real witchcraft. Like it's because there is, um, you know, there's a moral code, there's, there's the Wiccan read, there's ideas about karma and whether or not some of these things are even particularly accurate is another conversation. But hmm. the fact that there are witches out there who think that cursing and hexing is bad, well, that means that they're not really doing witchcraft. I think that's where the problem is is if you use the aesthetic to draw a line that you really don't, I think, have a, have solid grounds to draw. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It does make sense. Um, what is the, so the argument is that, that because there's a moral and ethical code, that that means that it's inauthentic. So, sometimes I think if we want to like reduce it. So the, the actual problem, I think, is that um, Wicca was the, the loud voice. It was, um, I mean, these were the books that were coming out. If you'd go to pagan events, like you'd hear from Wiccans and that would really overshadow other kinds of witchcraft. Mm. Um, I think that's the actual problem. The actual problem is that people are oblivious to the reality that there are other traditions. So what ends up happening is somebody says that they're a witch and then everybody who listens to that statement goes, Oh, you're a Wiccan. Okay. Oh, I know what you're all about. Like you have the threefold law and you have a quartered circle and you have a ritual dagger. And like, I, I know what your game is. You're a Wiccan. And that person is left there going, no, like I'm not, I'm a traditional witch or I'm a hereditary witch or I'm whatever. Um, and so that person is marginalized in an already marginalized community. And if that happens over the course of decades, like that really sucks yeah. for that bitch. So I think a lot of the Wicca backlash is actually rooted in that problem. It's not that people think it's inherently wrong to have an ethical code. Um, it's that people get sick of hearing it after decades. You know, sure. um, if you're, you're trying to have a conversation about witchcraft and magic in an open forum and, you know, 15 years ago, some Wiccan pops their head in and goes, you can't do that. It's against the Wiccan read. And it's like, I'm not a Wiccan. Um, <laughs> so I, I understand um, that kind of backlash. Um, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so people will say that they don't like Wicca or Wicca isn't real witchcraft because, well, historically, witches have you know, cast hexes and curses and historically witches worship the devil and historically witches do all these other things. And for decades, we've had Wiccans telling us that that isn't true. 
um, you know, so screw those Wiccans. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's just a question of like, who has the platform? So when people are critical of Wicca, that's usually the problem. My experience has been that even witches who say that they don't have something like a reed or like a solidified kind of dogma about how they should behave, even those witches still tend to abide by, they still have ethical codes. They have things that they think are morally right or, in, or incorrect. Um, right. So it's still not a magical free, fall, free for all one way or the other. Um, yeah. There's a lot of conversation there. Yeah, uh, for sure. Did, so did, did your formalized study of spirituality come before your uh, transition into Wicca or after? After. I started studying religion formally because I thought that I was going to be like a Wiccan academic who was going to revolutionize the academy <laughs> and like teach them that, you know, there's here are these other valid traditions that need to be studied. And wasn't I shocked when I got into my program and I was like, oh, wait a minute, people have been studying this for decades. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, maybe not well all the time, but like there's, there's a nice an increasingly growing body of pagan and witch scholars out there who aren't necessarily practitioners, but like those things are increasingly being documented. Um, hmm. So it definitely came after. Did it, did it uh, influence your, your own uh, spirituality? Yes. Um, although I think not in the ways, certainly not the ways I expected. What my work in religious studies did um, cause I was, I went through, um, I finished my master's and the, originally the intention had been like from undergrad, the intention was to pursue PhD work. So I was committed. Um, and I stopped for a variety of reasons. Um, but I found that undergoing that lengthy process left me with a much better sense of, um, religion as a whole category. And I find that my empathy for other traditions is substantially increased. I can move in, in Christian spaces in a way that most of the other pagans and witches that I know don't feel comfortable. Hmm. Um, I have, I think um, I'm much more comfortable engaging with people from other traditions. And I'm also much less quick to write things off um, I'm thinking in terms of like right now, it's, it's very, I, I, when I, when I use the word trendy, I, I'm trying not to be dismissive. I just, I'm not thinking of another word off the cuff. It's popular right now to insist that witchcraft is inherently secular and we kind of superimpose religion on it. So like, if you want to be a witch and you want to do that within the context of Wicca and be a Wiccan witch, then that's fine. But right now it's, it's, very, it's very common for people to insist that they're a secular witch or they're not religious or their witchcraft is just a practice and not a religion. And I, I think that comes from a place. And I think as a religious studies scholar, we can historically look at why people say things like that. But as a scholar, I learned to question what it means to be religious. Um, and when people say that they aren't religious, <coughs> what does that actually mean? Because there isn't an objective definition of what a religion is. Usually what people mean is that they don't worship a God. They don't have a deity. They don't have, but any religious studies scholar will tell you that a lot of religions don't behave that way. Like having a deity or a God doesn't necessarily indicate that something is a, like um, the, the category is very nebulous. Um, hmm. So 
I don't know, like I, I learned to read into the kinds of statements that people make and think about why they might be making them. Um, and that led me to have different sorts of relationships in my community. Um, I was also able through my work with evangelical churches, I did, my, I did a big chunk of my master's work on megachurches in the South. Um, and I actually attended a megachurch as part of um, some ethnographic work I was doing for a couple of years. Um, and I was wow. involved in, yeah, because I wanted to do ethnography. I wanted to go amongst the people. Was this in the South, the megachurch? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and because I was there as a scholar, I had to disclose who I was and what I was doing and people signed forms and it was all on the up and up. Um, but I was really struck, not growing up in a Christian environment and not really spending a lot of time around Christians, I was struck by the ecstatic experience of God in the megachurch that really looked a lot like witchcraft to me. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and looked, like that was really cool. So then subsequently as a coven leader, when I was explaining things like transpossession to, to students, I could go, I had this, this other set of language that I could talk about because Christians practice these things too. Yeah. They just have different frameworks for it. Um, so I feel like being a religious studies scholar gave me an additional tool, toolbox um, as a witch. Um, that's been really invaluable. Um, I ended up, you know, I didn't go on and do academic work and I don't work for the academy now. Um, I work for an academic publisher, but um, this, these were still some of the most valuable, I think, undertakings as, as part of my training, like as a witch was that work I did in a religious studies grad program. Wow. Um, so, so you transplanted to the South, uh, um, when? So I, I'm from, um, I was born in DC and I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia. So oh. I'm, I'm from like, like technically it's the South, but anybody from that area will tell you like, it's not the South. Okay? Right. Um, yeah. But my father is from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And so like we have family here in the South. Um, and I finished, I went to college in Virginia. Um, and when I finished college, I couldn't afford the DC area, you know, and I wasn't going to live with my parents. Um, and I ended up in Raleigh, North Carolina, because I was dating a boy who wanted to move to Raleigh. And I have, a brother who had moved to Raleigh. So I rented a room for my brother and I just never left North Carolina. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I stayed in North Carolina until I could get in-state residency. And then I went back to school and I did um, another undergraduate degree in religion. And then I stayed and I went to graduate school. I moved to Charlotte to, um, for school and now I'm back in Raleigh. So North Carolina is home, but it was kind of an accident. <laughs> failed relationship. <laughs> did did you find your your spiritual work influenced by being in the South, especially North Carolina, like the sort of hill witchy Appalachian -y kind of tradition? Um, so this uh, this is sort of funny. Um, in one significant way, yes. Um, I very much railed against the South when I first moved here. Um, I mean, I moved largely for financial reasons and. I wasn't thrilled about it. You know, I had, a, I had the same kind of dream that I think a lot of people did. Like I wanted to go to a big city, like maybe New York. I played mm -hmm. guitar. I wanted to be in bands, like whatever. Um, and moving to the South felt like a step backwards. Um, so I really was resistant about it. Um, but I made a very conscious decision and I did magic around this. Like I made a very conscious decision to like make this my home. Like, okay, I have to be here. Um, it feel, it's a waste of energy to like, be upset about it. Let's see what we can fix about it. Um, and one of the things I did 
was I started practicing archery uh, because in my tradition of Wicca, we see, um, we see the god as a horned god of hunting. Um, this is common in a lot of witchcraft traditions, as I'm sure you know. Um, this idea that the god is the god of wild places and hunting and animals and the turn of the seasons, right? All of this kind of, um, not even agricultural imagery, but like hunting imagery. Um, so I decided that in order to deepen that relationship, I was going to explore archery. Well, exploring archery in rural North Carolina <laughs> means interacting with people like bow hunters. And so like I was looking for a place to shoot because I just like got myself a bow on the internet. And I was literally like, like under the cover of darkness, like going to construction sites to like practice. Oh like it's super dangerous, right? I'd never do this now. Um, just so I could practice, because I lived in a suburb, I couldn't just shoot in my yard. So when I was looking for places to shoot, um, I found a, a traditional archery club um, in the state, and I started going to this club, and I was the only woman. I was like one of the youngest people. I was definitely in the only, I mean, like these are the Make America Great Again people. Like sure. this is where those people are. Yeah. Um, in their camo and like their red hats and mm -hmm. this is pre red hat era, but like I, I'm, I assure you many of them have red hats today. <laughs> um, and like the, those are the people who I was interacting with. And these people are born and bred Southern. Um, and like I was, I was a novelty, um, but they taught me how to shoot. And I found that being with them, even if I would disagree with them politically, which was all the time, um, and we would have conversations in those spaces. And I actually eventually joined their board of directors. I spent four years on their board, right? Like, and I, I, I brought friends who subsequently joined the club. So like by the time I left um, and stepped down from the board, uh, the president was a pagan. Um, they had people in their 20s and 30s. So like we really changed the face of this club over the course wow. of several years. Um, but in hanging out with these old camo clad mountain men dudes, tell you what, those people love deer and they love nature and they love the cycles of the seasons. And I have seen grown men brought to tears over deer. Yeah. Um, and that shit is magical. Um, so yeah, here I am with these people who are so different from me. Um, but like, just like in those church experiences, like there's similarity here. And I took that back with me in my relationship with my gods and with my, with my tradition. I can't tell you how much it warms my heart to hear you say all that. Um, I'm from the South originally, from Tennessee. Okay, you get it. <laughs> yeah, I do get it. And from a very small kind of uh, impoverished town in Tennessee. And um, yeah, I, there is something about deer. <laughs> yes. yes. I don't know what it is uh, exactly, but... I think it has something to do, this is a very, you know, uh, specific perspective to me, but um, there is, there are so many mornings I spent growing up in the early dawn hours mm -hmm. with, you know, a light mist out the window mm -hmm. and riding in the backseat of a car on the way to school and seeing a whole, you know, family of deer yeah. gallop through a field. 
there's that are still like deeply lodged in me and i was never like a big hunter because i was uh as a kid i was like super overweight and i never really expressed too much interest in the things that the normal southern boys around me were super interested in um so it just never i think i somebody a friend of mine tried to get me to go once and i went with them and walked into the woods and then walked right back out and sat in the car uh, until they were done because it was just, it was overwhelming, yeah. too sensitive. <laughs> um, so there, but even that experience of like friends of mine and family members who hunt, the, the feeling of like deep reverence for, for the hunt, uh, even though it's super, you know, I would say industrial in a strange way with all the firepower and mm -hmm. the camo and all that. It's got a weird metallic feeling yeah. to it. But, but even with all that, there's still this deep like connection to what's happening um, that I don't see really talked about a whole lot. You know, I, th I think about since I've left the South, I think about this all the time that there, 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 are so many similarities between you know new englanders and southerners and it, it's almost like you can't really see it until you're immersed in both both places and neither one of the groups of people in those places want to necessarily admit that they're similar yeah but they are in these really like deep profound ways um yeah well, and that causes a bit of a crisis, I think, too, because there are a lot of things, again, about these groups that I find abhorrent. Yeah. Um, especially when we're going to talk politics, like, which we have to. Um, yeah. But my strategy was, and again, because, like, I had the mental wherewithal and the privilege to engage in these conversations. Um, like, I could sit down with these dudes in their camo hats and talk about well, you know, the reason women don't come back to your club is because you, you do these things and it makes us feel weird. And every single time we would have those conversations, they would be appalled at themselves. You oh, know? wow. Um, like I, there were times when I met resistance, especially when talking about, I mean, we're talking about sexuality. Um, God, that is well, such a big, oh. Yes. <laughs> and what I saw, what I saw over and over again was that, you know, that whole like, um, love the sinner, hate the sin mentality. There was a lot of that going around. Um, but we could have a dialogue about it. Um, and I don't, again, like I had the privilege to have that conversation, you yeah. know, like being, being like the, the ponytail clad straight white girl, like they would talk to me. Right. Um, so it was at, at least they were exposed to those conversations and we could have them over the course of, of the years that I was with them. Um, I think that's, that's a small step, but like, how do I rationalize? Like, how do I deal with this cognitive dissonance of here are these people who I abhor politically, but on a very deep spiritual level, I get it. Like when we're right. in the woods together, I get it. Um, and the only, re the only thing that makes me different from them um, is that my dad left Tuscaloosa and I was born in DC. Like that's the difference. I didn't yeah. grow up around it. Like I, my parents are both soldiers. They were, you know, we moved and like 
all the schools in DC are liberal, right? Like <laughs> I, there was, my parents will sort of like look at me and shake their heads every time. Like, you know, there was just no chance I wasn't turning out liberal. <laughs> um, and, you know, thank, like, thank goodness. But yeah, like I, it's it, tough. It, it was very startling to have those realizations and find myself experiencing, um, you know, not even just empathy or compassion, but like genuine friendship with some of these people. Yeah. You know? And like, should I, like, what do I do with that? I have same this with, one, yeah, this same one, yeah. Oh my God. I, I was, as a high schooler, I don't know why this happened to me, but um, when I was in high school, I was very into going to church and went to a lot of churches in church my little kind community. Of fun. Especially when you're like in a small yeah. town in the South. Church is fun. They have rock bands and pizza yeah. nights. And if there's yeah. nothing to do, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's this one, it was probably my favorite. It was definitely the one I went to the longest. It was called Bethesda Apostolic Pentecostal Temple of God. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> there was the speaking in tongues. There was snake dancing. There was, uh, you know, constant, uh, I don't even know what the word is, joy. This the closest I could come to it, but it's higher yeah, than joy. that. Joy is the word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so... Pivoting a little bit, something I've noticed a lot about your sort of online presence that really interests me is you're very vocal about the role of skepticism in your worldview. Yeah. Um, just talk a little bit about how that has interacted with or it is interacting with your spiritual expression uh, in Wicca, your writing, and, and what you're seeing sort of in the scene as it is right now. Um. I think that religion as a whole, however you want to define religion, if you think witchcraft is a religion or not, you know, humor me while I put it into this category for a second. Um, I think religion is very reasonable. Like whether or not it's actually true, whatever the thing is, the fact that people behave a certain way because of feelings that they have or connections that they're trying to build, it's very reasonable why people engage in religion it makes sense like there are lots of things that religion does it it provides comfort like all kind of like the laundry list of things that we could cover in a religion 101 class um you know it gives us framework and meaning and explanation and all this other stuff um and people do it because it's reasonable um even if it's not lowercase t true you know, um, it still, it still builds things into life that make it worthwhile for a lot of people. Um, and I came to religion as a whole and Wicca specifically as somebody with a largely secular background, probably as secular as you can get in the United States, just because, yeah, my dad was from Alabama, um, but he was estranged from his family for a long time. So he didn't impose the religiosity of his family on me. Um, meanwhile, my mother um, is a is a Catholic, um, but not really a practicing Catholic. And I like I grew up on an army base for a hot second, and like we traveled around Europe. Like I'm an army brat, so like there was no church to go to. There was like none of that stuff was a factor in my life. And I I was as I said exposed to witchcraft through so through um, popular media, um, and so I came at this my first encounter with spirituality 
from this very like kind of skeptical mindset. Like I wanted to be a science major when I went to college and I like, I had all these plans for myself. Um, but I nonetheless was having these very like real kind of experiences and feelings that I couldn't ignore. So I subsequently had to take those feelings like with the hunters um, and do something with them, like put them in a framework. Um, and it doesn't always work all the time. Okay. But I think we do ourselves a disservice when we take our skeptical minds and we sort of think we have to put them away. I think they're actually our best asset. Hmm. Um, it's made me a better ritualist. And I think it's made me a better teacher because I have a better sense, I think, of why maybe why people do things or how people think. And I'm less concerned with whether or not something is objectively true and more concerned with kind of the capital T truth, like the changes and the impacts that it has on somebody's lives. And kind of through being open-minded like that, I've had experiences with, for example, the gods that are very real to me. But what I wouldn't do is try to persuade you that they were objectively real. You know, right. um, I don't think that part of the equation matters. So do you, do you concern yourself much with uh, like cosmology and like a, a framework of how the universe works um, deeper than the material? Like uh, does having that a sort of rigid structure, cosmological framework, let's say, matter as much to you? Or is it kind of like, you know, this feels, uh, this has worked for me. It has opened up a capital T truth. So I don't necessarily need this whole scaffolding to, to, to build I'm, a faith on. Yeah. So I'm very good at compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. um, so I have found, for example, in, in witchcraft spaces broadly, again, not Wicca specifically, some of the work that I've been doing in particular is not, is outside of, of my particular tradition. Um, there are concepts like the astral plane and um, etheric bodies, this idea that there are other realms and other energies in the world and things we can experience and manipulate. Um, I'm very good at thinking about how those things impact me in a practical way, like, like ritually. So like I can go into a ritual and like in ritual space, yeah, the astral plane is real. Like, yeah, these, these ethereal spaces are real and they have tangible kind of, um, kinds of results when we explore them. But when I'm walking around on the street, you know, or when I'm working or when I'm doing whatever, um, I can set those things, I can kind of like, I can set those things within a particular context, not in the sense that I like stop believing in things when I get out of ritual, but my, my skeptical kind of like, especially my religious studies brain can kick on and it can go, oh, like, well, this is also me creating a framework to build meaning because that's also true like the astral plane doesn't have to objectively be real for it to also be a framework through which humans create meaning you know sure. what i mean yeah um so like i think the conversations that we have about death are really good for talking about this sort of thing because you know everybody's so concerned with like what happens when we die and that's one of the first questions people ask like what do you think happens when you know is there an afterlife and do wiccans believe in an afterlife whatever and it makes people crazy when I say things like, I don't know, or like even, I don't really care. Yeah. Um, just because the way I see it, like I, I can't know, um, but it makes perfect sense to me why people are so concerned with that thing. 
Um, so sometimes actively sitting down and thinking about cosmology is really useful because it helps us to do things like write liturgy or make sense of our myths or experience those myths in really tangible ways. But other times cosmology can be really limiting. I think Wicca is dealing with this right now and talking about gender. Because a lot yeah. of our cosmology, like as Western esotericists, this whole idea of like duality and male and female and dark and light. And now practitioners can go, oh, maybe that's a problem. Um, because those things shift. And thank God the cosmology is flexible. So we can look back at those things and go, oh, wait a second. We're building our own meaning. We can change that. Yeah. Um, so I think having that perspective is important. So yeah, cosmology is important, but you know, like we have, like we, we are still the ones building those things, I think. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, <laughs> I was really into you and this, I was selfishly into you, this video you posted in April um, about being a, a content creator in the, pagan witchcraft space um, yeah for obvious reasons i was interested in that <laughs> um what in general you've been on youtube a long time right yes yeah, so it was an accident it's coming up on like 10 years oh wow <laughs> isn't that weird that's crazy <laughs> what in general has your experience been like overall on on that platform and and kind of where is it today where's your thinking on on youtube the pagan youtube which youtube uh, and the value of all that, how is it playing out for you? I love YouTube. Um, YouTube is my favorite platform, um, and it's changed a lot. And there are definitely things about it now that I'm not a super fan of, and there are things that I miss about 10 years ago. Um, but by and large, I think we, I saw this when I was a classroom teacher. Like, I, I don't think we always realize how important YouTube is for how people learn. Like we make jokes about, oh, I just watched a YouTube video to do this thing. Like I learned to change a tire by watching the YouTube video, you know. Um, but in the classroom, like YouTube was this giant resource because you knew the kids were watching it anyway. You may as well use it. And the same thing is true for witchcraft. Um, I suspect that increasingly people aren't really reading witchcraft books. Um, yeah. I mean, they buy them. Certainly. I don't, like, I don't, I'm not in that industry. So I don't know like what those numbers actually look like. I know that certainly people are publishing a lot more, but when I'm like hanging out online and I'm getting a sense of what people have been exposed to, increasingly they're citing YouTube accounts or TikTokers or Instagram accounts. They're not really citing books. Mm. And the books that they are citing are books that have been around for decades. They're not citing things that were published last year. Um, so I think YouTube is really important. Um, and honestly, like it kind of bewilders me a little bit. It feels sort of neglected in our wider community. In a strange way, right? Yeah, cause like when you look at who's like, who's popular in YouTube communities talking about witchcraft, the occult paganism, overwhelmingly they're not the established writers and speakers and teachers that we see like offline or even on other platforms. YouTube is kind of its own entity. Like it has its own influencers. It has its own teachers. Um, and I think that's really awesome. Like from an anthropological perspective, like variety is wonderful. Um, but it, it's kind of confusing, I think, for outsiders coming in and seeing it for the first time. Um, mm. And I've watched like big pagan authors try to set up YouTube channels and kind of fail because 
it's a different medium and it's different content. There's different taboos. There's different expectations. There's different jargon. Yeah. Um, and I think all of that's really exciting. Um, I've made a lot of friends on YouTube, people who I've come to meet in my travels too, like in person. And um, I think there's a really nice community. And the cool thing about YouTube is that it's, it's not all like, just like intellectually delivered kind of rehearsed informative content. It's, you know, 13 year olds with shaky phones, like taping their altars and talking about their feelings. And that's way more <laughs> informative than like yet another five minute video about truths about witchcraft. Right. <laughs> I love the practitioner videos. Um, and you can't get that like anywhere else. Like I want to see the shaky camera videos with the person and their feelings and not knowing what's going on. Those are the best. <laughs> and that's why I like don't edit my videos and I don't script anything. And I don't, because it started as a way to just talk to other practitioners, not to advertise something. Yeah. It always, it feels a little strange with the advertising. I mean, I have, I do the advertising too, but it feels sure. so in my, in my, in my normal life, my day life, um, I do, uh, I basically help people get content created. Um, okay. yeah. and so I, I have worked with and do currently work with a lot of people in this space who are trying to transition some more successfully than others into like making online content, making YouTube content specifically. And exactly what you just said is like the biggest hurdle I've seen to people who are established outside the platform, trying to come onto the platform that they want it to be this big glossy thing. Um, and they're so afraid to do what you're doing, which is just turn on the camera and talk. Turn, I'm turn on the camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause that, so I made my very first YouTube video basically because like, I, I don't even remember how I kind of discovered pagan YouTube, but I was watching all these videos of people who, this was back at YouTube. Um, you used to be able to do video responses where you could like directly tag somebody and your video would show up in a chain with theirs. And it was like a conversation and you can't do that anymore. Um, but all of these people were engaging in this in these conversations and i found that my particular kind of witchcraft which is initiatory wicca there wasn't anybody talking about that stuff so i was like hey i've got feelings i've got a <laughs> shitty camera i've got a <laughs> shitty computer i can do this <laughs> um and i never really stopped because that was always my focus um and i find that you know i've explored kind of like there was one point it was kind of a big deal when I started making video thumbnails. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then I was just like, I ah, screw this. <laughs> um, but to me, I find that I don't really watch a lot of the polished videos, yeah. um, especially in witchcraft spaces, just because that's not why I'm there. Like I want friends and I want to see, like, I want to know what you're doing in your back room. And like, I want to know, like, I'm a voyeur. I don't want somebody to tell me like, you know, myths of true myths and truths of witchcraft. or like how to do this spell. I right. think it's boring. I can write my own spells. I want to know what you're doing. Cause I'm a voyeur. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's cool about YouTube. So like get yourself a shaky camera and, you know, have a drink if you need to. And you know, that get that'll get you more views <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be able to live with yourself too all the maybe yeah <laughs> what other so you're on other social platforms as well um here's a question sure. that i'm, I'm I, I don't even really know how to phrase it but i feel that there 
I find myself having to justify continued interaction with these platforms a lot to mm. myself. Um, mm. Are do you face the same things? That's I sure a, do. Yeah, let's I sure do. let's go into that um, if if we may. I guess, so it depends on the platform, right? Like it's easy to sort of say, and some authors do say uh, that all of them are bad. Um, my own perspective on it is it really depends on the platform. It depends on what they're doing. And to some degree, these are all propaganda machines and manipulation engines. And, you know, they're working toward their bottom line and their bottom line requires that you become addicted to what they're doing. So they are, you know, their nature is inherently addictive. Um, and firing off parts in your brain that drugs fire off, all that. You could go down that road and say, yeah, <laughs> we're not, good, good job. You did it. Um, so you could go down that road, but I'm more thinking like, okay, let's not go down that road just for the time being and say some of these platforms we could say are healthier than others. And, and you as a content creator and thinker and author and teacher and all the things that you are, and a pretty well connected one, I would say, you know, like it's an accident. <laughs> <laughs> Started out with YouTube and a glass of wine, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you too can be well connected in the pagan space with just wine and a shitty camera. <laughs> I mean, where's the lie? <laughs> <laughs> How are you dealing with this, with these platforms and the ethical, um, I don't want to say constraints, but I, I guess implications. Of, you can of, say it. Yeah. I know. Yeah. What do what do you think about all that? Um, God. So it's, I've drawn lines in the past, which I've subsequently crossed. And one of the ones I'm thinking about is Facebook. Um, and I think like when people talk about the ethics of social media, beyond all of like the propaganda hunger games machine stuff, like, um, people are very concerned about things like privacy and like how we're monitored on Facebook and not just Facebook. But I think a lot of those conversations start with Facebook just because Facebook is the ubiquitous one and Facebook increasingly owns all of the other ones. Right. Um, and how do you not participate in those kinds of systems? And to some extent, I'm not sure that we can choose not to participate. Um, I found this increasingly where like, I don't know if you've seen this, but half the time you can't now that with with COVID and we're doing things electronically and online if you don't have a Facebook account there's some stuff that you just don't have access to like this this meeting is happening on Facebook live or um some businesses like even just to see Facebook pages a lot of the time you have to be a member which means that there are certain businesses that aren't getting customers because you know younger and younger people don't have Facebook and I think people don't realize, like my high schoolers didn't have Facebook because grandma had Facebook, old people had Facebook. You know? <laughs> um, they were all on, they were all on the chat snaps and whatever else. <laughs> so like, there's definitely a demographic difference. Um, but I, I didn't want to be on Facebook, not because I have any sort of like high moral ground, but because I know myself and I knew that I was going to use Facebook to like stock ex-boyfriends and look up my middle school bully. Uh -huh. and, like I knew I was just going to use it for evil. <laughs> um, so I was kind of really trying to do my mental health a favor and not like have that stuff bombarded at me. Um, but part of my work as an author required me to set up 
a Facebook page. So suddenly I'm kind of dabbling in this space. Um, and then like, you know, YouTube, YouTube changes and Instagram gets purchased and all this other stuff. And suddenly like you're part of the machine, whether you want to be or not. Um, and I, I try to just sort of, I try to keep the spirit, like the original spirit in my YouTube videos. Like I try to maintain that as best as I can. And the platform definitely like fights against that. The platform, you know, the fact that they, they, you can't share links and you can't um, do video responses and you can't, um, you know, the pages are set up. So it's a lot more difficult to like advertise other channels or share who you follow and that sort of thing. Um, and then the implementation of ads and becoming a YouTube partner and all this stuff that made things very different. Um, I try to, I mean, I try to get around that stuff where I can. Um, and my, my kind of like my line with Facebook was I'm not going to do like firsthand interaction on Facebook. Facebook is purely going to be a sharing platform. So like I set it up that every time I sneeze on Instagram or YouTube, it automatically posts it on Facebook, mm -hmm. which I think confuses people because then they try to interact with me on Facebook and like, I don't even see those comments most of the time. Um, so it's, it's, it's tricky and it's awful. And I figure at the best I can do is try to put out content that is, I don't know, like is as good as it can be and is as honest as it can be. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the solutions are there. It's tricky. I, I sometimes feel like there's some sort of, um, there's some sort of energy with social media that feels totally dominant. And I, I guess I mean that in the obvious sort of material way that I'm sure a lot of people will interpret it, which is it is so pervasive that of course it's dominant. But I also mean that it sometimes feel like there's something else going on too, some sort of weird undercurrent that is like not, not uh, will not be gone until it's ready to be gone. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think the internet is a place, like a mm. capital P place. And I think that just, just being in pagan spaces and witchcraft spaces, I have noticed that there are very distinct, and this is my religious studies scholar hat I'm putting on again for a second, like pagan communities online are very different from pagan communities at festivals, at meat spaces, like they are different. The demographics are different. The concerns are different the taboos are different, the language is different. And I think some of our problems arise when people assume that they're the same spaces, because of course there's overlap. Most of us have a foot in both places. Um, kind of what I was saying about earlier, like with, with young people, like the more I interact with, with those youngsters, right? Um, I'm thinking about mostly, mostly teenagers um, and into the early twenties, but mostly teenagers. Um, you know, and I, again, like as a high school teacher, I think I had some additional insight into this. Um, they're hanging out in different places and they're consuming different media. And that's true in witchcraft too. So like if you talk to a 15 year old about how they're learning witchcraft right now, they're not reading the stuff that's being posted on like Patheos Pagan or like that's available on some of these fancier kind of occult presses. Like they're not being exposed to that stuff even they're looking at TikTok and they're looking at Instagram. And then, and I think that it's a mistake for older pagans to say, Oh, well, that's because they're shallow. Oh, well, that's because they don't know better. Oh, well, that's because they just haven't grown brains yet or whatever awful things people say. It's because those spaces are different. 
And I think the needs of those communities are different and they overlap in some spaces, but um, they're, they're different realms. And I think that it gets kind of dangerous when we pretend that they're the same and our rules still apply in one place or the other. Um, you know, so like there's definitely, I think you're right. Like there's definitely kind of an energy to this other place in the same way that going to a different city or like walking into a, primal, a primeval forest might feel different. Um, right. You know, I, I, uh, I set up TikTok, I don't know, like last month and I don't think I'll ever post anything, but I wanted to see what all this, what like all the hubbub was about. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I don't understand it at all. I'm so overwhelmed. <laughs> And I like, I instantly transformed into my father. And I'm just like, what is this? What are these people do? Like, get off my lawn. <laughs> um, like, oh my God, TikTok <laughs> famous recently. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> um, she texted me and she got TikTok famous for doing cosplay. And... I also am, am, am grumpy in my 30s and don't know anything about <laughs> what people are doing. And uh, so she, she texts me and she's like, oh my God. And I'm like, what? She's like, my latest TikTok has 30,000 views. Oh my God. And I'm like, great, cool. So what do you get from that? And she's like, what? Because <laughs> my, my immediate response was like, so like, what are you doing in it? And she's yeah. like, I'm putting on makeup. I'm like, okay, <laughs> good, I guess. Literally everybody on TikTok is putting on makeup. So. It's, it's uh, yeah, I don't get it either. I want to get it though. I, I want to get it too. I, we're just, we, we may both be past the point <laughs> where we can get it. Leave us comments and teach us how. <laughs> <laughs> Someone, the first like Gen Zer who writes a, here's how to explain TikTok <laughs> to old folks. It's going to be a millionaire. <laughs> right. <laughs> so speaking of writing, here's a segue. Ready for this? <laughs> speaking of writing, tell me about your path to traditional Wicca. Oh, um, I wanted to be a traditional Wiccan. Like that's, that wasn't the word that people were really using at the time. Like I wanted to be an initiate. I wanted to be a priestess. I wanted to be a high priestess. I mean, you got to remember I'm like 15 at this point. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my very first books about witchcraft was one of those like flashy time life books, you know, with all like the naked ladies on it. I do know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, Oh my God. Like there's, there's like, there's like Maxine Sanders and like, look at all the boobs in this. And like, so not only is it my first exposure to witchcraft, like it's one of my earliest exposures to like sex and the devil and like all of this other kind of illicit stuff. Like what 13 year old is, I I mean, I was younger than 13 at this point, but like who isn't going to fall for that? That stuff's awesome. Um, And I just knew that like all of the people in those pictures, especially the women, I just thought like, those images just like spoke to my soul, you know, uh, for whatever reason. Um, and I remember like most of those time life books didn't describe particular traditions. Um, but there was, again, we can talk about aesthetics here. Like there was an aesthetic, there was like the dagger waved in the air and the nudity or like the sheer robes and the silver jewelry and like a big crown and like all that stuff. And I wanted whatever the hell that was. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I got older and I got my first book about Wicca and I was like, oh man, this is the same stuff. Um, except like, a, you know, we, we called it eclectic Wicca in the nineties. Um, you know, it's, it's gotten some different monikers since then, but what we were exploring in the nineties really didn't look like that. Like a lot of the tools were the same, but you really didn't see like skyclad skyclad practice generally. And you didn't see like, you didn't see swords waved around and you didn't see like billowing clouds of incense and naked ladies and boobs and crowns. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And I wanted that, like even as I got older and when I was a teenager and, and reading about witchcraft for real, I learned that oh, those pictures were Janet Farrar and they were Maxine Sanders and they were Pat Crowther and they were like these famous high priestesses of these traditions, like Gardnerian, Alexandrian particularly. Um, So I was like, I need whatever that is. Um, And my first book, like the first like real book I read about Wicca specifically was Teen Witch by Silver Ravenwolf. And in the introduction of Teen Witch, Silver Ravenwolf talks about reading Diary of a Witch by Sybil Leake. She says that like an older girl, I think a cousin, gave her this book and she read it and that's what kicked off her path. While eBay had just come out. So I was like, I'm gonna get me a copy of this shit. (laughs) Um, So I tracked down and I used I used my friend Rachel's dad's credit card, something oh. like that. Right? Because like like my friend Rachel helped me get this book. Um we were bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and I devoured it. And of course, like Sybil, Sybil Leake had her own traditions and she has practitioners who are active today. And like, I was really wrapped up in this idea of a coven and being brought in and ceremony. And like, I'm, maybe it's because I didn't grow up with ritual. I didn't grow up in a church. I didn't grow, like, I didn't have that sort of thing. So it was very novel and very sexy and very like, it felt, again, we were talking about the beginning, it felt subversive. Mm. Um, And that desire never went away. Like it matured. Um, I read Gerald Gardner and I read Ronald Hutton and I read Pat Crowther and I read, I read all of these authors and there were definitely periods where I was like, no, I'm fine being eclectic or no, like I prefer to be solitary. And I explored other traditions too. but I think part of me, like, that, that desire never went away, just on a deep kind of irrational level. Um, and I approached a Gardnerian coven for the first time when I was in college the second time. I had kind of a tempestuous college career. Me um, too. Yes. <laughs> it's not real unless you quit at some point. That's very true. <laughs> um, but, uh... I had just gotten out of a really bad relationship and I was just kind of like, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to email these people. Like I was on witchbox.com and I like, you know, I, I checked it very intermittently at this point. I was, I was mostly solitary. I'd studied with another, another tradition. Um, but I was like, what the hell? Life is meaningless. I'm going to email the gardenerian. Like, who can, like. <laughs> I love like, that that's your, your nihilist thing to like, do. Yes, my, my nihilist thing to do. Um, it's, it's worse. And like, I'm actually turning into Ernest Hemingway as I say this. Like, I was in a Parisian hostel. Oh, my God. I was, I was very drunk. Oh, right? my God. And like, 
I had just gotten out of this horrific relationship and I would like, I was an artiste, right? <laughs> um, and I found this ad um, and the ad said, look, we're not open to people go away basically. And I was just like, no, <laughs> I'm going to email anyway. Um, and the, the high priestess wrote back to me and it turned out that we had the same, like, we had the same, we'd grown up with the same breed of dog. So we bonded over dogs. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but it was just kind of a combination of all of those things, like kind of the, the titillating experiences of childhood coupled with like my weird sort of Parisian drunken moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I think I was primed. So yeah. There you wow. Go. <laughs> what a, you are, you might be the coolest person I've ever met. <laughs> that is a very cool story. It was an accident. It's all been an accident. <laughs> so I have a question about, uh, you're sort of a book snob, admittedly, right? I've, I've heard you refer to yourself as a book snob. Um, here's a, a question that I come across a lot in Salem and talking about Salem. Mm -hmm. um, how do you recommend people sort of, especially people who are just starting to get interested in Wicca um, or just starting to practice even, how do you recommend relative newbies discern the quality of a book? Well. <laughs> <laughs> like um, a witch book, you know? Like yeah. what, are, what are some, I, I know there are authors we could throw out, right? That, sure. but, but what are some qualities that, that you pick up, a, you pick up a book and you're like, oh, oh, I should read this. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I love this. Um, <laughs> and Shameless Whoring, this is actually a whole chapter in my next book. Not hey. about, it's ab about discernment and kind of how to read because I'm a high school teacher by training, so I can't help it even when I'm talking to adults. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there are a few things that you can do, like when you're standing in a bookstore, okay? And keeping in mind, like, and, you know, older teens, you know, I don't, I don't want to erase those guys either. Like these apply to them too. Um, you want to have your, your adult kind of discerning brain ready to go because just because you're interested in something witchcraft, like witchcraft or anything spooky, anything that's new to you, like you're still a discerning critical adult. Like that's just true about adulthood. You know, you learn these skills at some point. Um, when you're standing on a shelf, at a shelf and you pick up a book, you flip through it. And the first thing I do is I read the author bio. What does the author bio say? Um, if you're a total noob, totally a beginner, there's a good chance you've never heard of the author. That's fine. But you can tell a lot about a person based on what they say about themselves. Uh. Um, so that's the first place I go. Do they claim to have titles? Do they claim to belong to particular institutions? Again, you're not necessarily going to know what any of those words mean, but you do understand then when somebody spews a lot of titles at you like people do that for a reason like outside of witchcraft whatever like um that's how people establish their authority so the first thing that i ask myself is how well did they establish their authority do i believe them mm -hmm. like have i heard of any of these things are any of these things meaningful for me do they name drop anybody oh i was a student of so-and-so like all of that stuff might be important um, some of my favorite books have been, and none of these are rules, okay, but I have noticed that many of my favorite books 
have author bios that say things like, so-and-so has been a witch for X period of time, and you know they live here, and they practice, and they love Wicca or witchcraft or whatever. There's no titles, there's no like grandstanding. It's just like, here's a person who very clearly like has an opinion about what they're doing and has thoughts. Um, you know, so-and-so has been practicing, a, is, is a practicing witch and she loves her husband and like, this is her third book. Like, <laughs> you know, like that's, that to me is, is more, I don't know. And again, kind of like what we were talking about with YouTube, I love the personal experience. I'm not always looking for somebody to lecture at me. And right. that was true as a beginner too. Like the thing I loved the most about my very first books um, were that they were so anecdotal. Um, one of the reasons why I think Silver Ravenwolf was so popular in the 90s and why Teen Witch was such a huge hit is because she wrote about her kids. She wrote about what her kids did and what her kids' altars looked like and what her kids said. And as a child, like that made more sense to me than an adult telling me like, this is why air is in the East or whatever. Right. Um, so you can get a sense about a person by reading their bio first. The next thing you can do is look again, looking at the cover. Um, covers have blurbs on them, statements from other authors, other media figures. Who's endorsing the book? Is the book endorsed by other witches or is it endorsed by Publishers Weekly or some mm. other like mainstream kind of, right? Is it endorsed by, I don't know, a fashion magazine or is it endorsed by um, a pagan community? Like you can get a sense, even if you don't know anything about those authors necessarily like there's often a little blurb like you know so-and-so author of whatever has this to say who's mm -hmm. endorsing the book um because like those are those are marketing tactics like we all write book blurbs we're all expected to write book blurbs we write reviews you know like there's you're and i i use this in kind of like the best way possible we're being manipulated by book covers that's their job like our yeah. job is to be like <laughs> that's what yeah. they're for. So, <laughs> right. Um, then I flip through the table of contents, and as somebody who doesn't know anything, it's important that the table of contents at least makes some sense, like makes some kind of like coherent. Does it look interesting? Do these things? There's a difference between, let's say, you have two books about witchcraft, and let's say chapter one in book A is how to do spells. And chapter one in book B is how to worship the horned god. Like, you know offhand that those are two very different experiences of witchcraft. You don't have right. to know anything about witchcraft to know that, oh man, these people value different things. Right. Now, that's not a judgment. If you want to learn spells, buy the book about spells. But if you're interested in a spiritual path or connecting to the natural world or whatever, then maybe buy the one that focuses on the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good rule of thumb, too. Um, the other thing that you can do is flip to the back and see if they have any kind of um, a bibliography, citations, um, further reading, anything like that. And you need to be careful here just because just because a book is cited in a bibliography, that's not an endorsement. That just means that the author quoted something, needed to back themselves up with something. It doesn't mean that they think that thing is right. I quote people I don't agree with all the time, right? And Chicago Turabian style means that I have to cite them in my bibliography at the end. Right. Um, but at least a bibliography means that they're doing that kind of work and they're looking at other things and they're drawing in other opinions. That's better than somebody who it's just them. 
-hmm. I think the more voices you can bring in as possible, the, the sturdier that foundation probably is. Again, not always true. Um, that's what I go with. Kind of um, one final thing that you can look at, which isn't necessarily meaningful to somebody who is completely new, but you can look at who the publisher is. And if you've got a smartphone, you can look up the publisher and you can see, is this an occult publisher? Is it a metaphysical publisher? Do they publish other kind of like spooky mystical books? Or is this a mainstream press? Um, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean anything objective about the book, but it could tell you something about its audience and who it's serving. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and this, this has been kind of a hot topic. Again, since the 90s, I'm thinking about, like, there were a lot of books that were endorsed by, like, Vogue and some of these other fashion magazines yeah. about, like, turning your man into a toad or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, if the blurbs on the cover are from, like, Elle magazine and Vogue magazine, and it's a mainstream publisher there's a good chance that it's not full of like that arcane wisdom of like an inner community. And if that's what you're seeking, then maybe that's not the book for you. Right. Well, it doesn't mean the other book is objectively bad, but like there are some things that you can do right away in like the span of 30 seconds with a book at a bookstore that will give you an impression, you know? Yeah. That's, that's all very, very good advice. So what are you, what are you into these days? What are you reading? That's, that's turning you on. Um, well, I am right now, this is again, like the high school teacher in me and also the religious <laughs> studies person in me. I am rereading Ronald Hutton's Triumph of the Moon. A 20th anniversary edition came out earlier this year and I decided that I was going to run a book club with it just because, um, Triumph of the Moon is one of those books. It came out originally in 1998 and it's a very intimidating book, especially if you don't have a background in academia. Um, it's got tiny print, it's long, it's expensive because it's on Oxford University Press. Like, it's just kind of an intimidating book. And I think, I have this working theory, that many of the people who say that they have read it have not actually read it. I th like with my high school kids, you know? Yeah. It's sort of like everybody says that they've read The White Goddess by Robert Graves. I don't believe them. <laughs> I like you know, oh, the Golden Bough. Oh, yeah, sure. I totally read that. No, you didn't. Like, it's like when it's like when you go to a bar, and like you sit next to some dude who tells you that his favorite book is Ulysses, and you're just oh like, my god, no, it's not, man. No, it's not. Right, right. <laughs> um, we do the same thing in like a cult book land. Um, <laughs> but the thing about Triumph of the Moon is that it's actually a really engaging book. I think the only thing that people need is some some scaffolding right like some some discussion and a little bit of hand holding maybe but just like some open conversation about it so i was like i'm gonna write a study guide for this book and i'm gonna like do this with a group um so i'm rereading this book with a bunch of other people through my patreon um this is kind of like this is my additional thing that i offer right um and it's 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 all about me and my own self-gratification because like, I love this book and I just want to run my mouth about it. Um, but it's is, really it, is the study guide out yet? No. Um, what I'll do, so what I'm doing is with each chapter, I'm writing a series of guiding questions which are designed to be thought about before you even read the chapter. It's kind of like, let's just like in high school, right? Like, let's create, like, let's, let's draw, drop the background have the big ideas in place, then read the chapter, which may or may not be difficult for you, depending on your reading level. And there's no shame in that. Like, you know, 
I, I, I went and studied religion formally. So like I have a toolbox that somebody who didn't do that doesn't have, you know, that's not a failing. Um, so, but that is something that I can put into practice to help that person. Um, right. And then I'll do like a synopsis and then we'll have discussion and then I will have questions for afterwards that are based on the text itself. Again, just like high school, because I never really stopped being a teacher even after I left. <laughs> um, it's been really fun to read it again with people just because reading any book with other people is a different experience. Totally um, is. Yeah. So I'm really pumped about that. Um, and then the other thing that gets me really excited generally, you know, so I am a book snob, but I'm not a book snob in the sense that I think people shouldn't read things. Like I'm a book snob in the sense that I think that like books are holy. Like I think books are like the purest expression of like human creativity and art. And like, I just love everything about them. I work for a publisher now. Like I, my house is full of books. Uh, my husband is the dude who ran the local bookstore in Charlotte. I, I like single-handedly destroyed Charlotte's book culture by like marrying the dude. And then we moved to Raleigh, <laughs> um, you know, when his inventory came with us. <laughs> You've destroyed the minds of that entire town. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, I think people should read whatever they can. So one of the things that gets me really excited is I love books that are aimed um, at beginners and I love books that are aimed particularly at teenagers. So like, I love that whole genre. Fiona Horan is coming out with a new like teen witch guide. I don't even know when she just said something on Instagram and I'm here for it. <laughs> um, not because I think that these books are like the greatest books ever written necessarily, but because I think beginner books are a great way to sort of gauge what's going on in a community. Mm. Um, they say something about what we value in the moment and like beginner books change from kind of generation to generation of practitioners. Um, so like, I, I love them. I, I totally want the book that's like mark marketed, you know, like in whatever the fashion magazine or whatever is sexy on Instagram right now. Like I totally eat that stuff up. Um, not because I think the information is something that we should all adhere to, but because, like these are primary sources in a religious community. These are sacred texts essentially. And what they say tells us something about the practitioner, not necessarily the religion itself. That's a nuance right. I think people miss. Right. Um, similarly with like the sexy kind of expensive leather bound, like Scarlet Imprint, Troy books, three hands. Like I love those things too. My working partner calls them um, the beanie babies of the occult book world. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so true. There's only, there's only 666 copies printed and, you know, red goatskin and imbued spirit of an old hag. <laughs> and like, I have half of them upstairs and it's awesome. Right. <laughs> but like, those books make a statement about our communities too. I don't think it's coincidence, for example, that like most of those books are written by men. Mm. Like I don't like people don't really talk about that, but like overwhelmingly those books are written by like overwhelmingly they're written by men. And mm. those are like the serious ones that we're supposed to shell out money for. And we're supposed to shit on the beginner books, which are overwhelmingly written by women. Right? Huh. Like, it's weird. Right. But now that I've said that to you, you're going to notice it all the time. I am. You're right. Yeah. Um, and it's not that the information in those books is so valuable. It's that the perspective of that author is valuable. That tells me something about our movement. You know, like, 
it doesn't matter to me whether or not like what Gemma Gary or Michael Howard or anybody says about like, you know, oh, well, like this, this historical practice and European witchcraft, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't care if any of that is objectively true. I care that Michael Howard thinks it's true. Hmm. And I care about how that idea is propagated through those books and how it then 10 years later shows up on TikTok from a kid who doesn't know who Michael Howard is. Huh. Like, that's what's interesting. Um, so that's what gets me off. And that's why I try to read everything. Um, um, I mean, I think kind of one of the, the you, you've asked the question that makes me run my mouth. Sorry. <laughs> I think about um, how adamantly people will tell you that somebody like Silver Ravenwolf is terrible, for example, like you've heard these arguments, sure. right? We shouldn't read Silver Ravenwolf. Um, and you can have all, like, you can have any number of problems with any single author. That's fine. But what's fascinating to me and you wouldn't know this unless you'd been reading everything for decades and had no standards like me. <laughs> like, um, people will say, oh, no, you shouldn't read X author because of whatever. Cultural appropriation, bad history, the burning times, like you name it. And then they'll say, instead, read this author. And this author does the exact same stuff. Huh. Which just tells me that they didn't actually read this author they're criticizing. Right? Like they'll say oh, don't read Silver Ravenwolf, her history is terrible. I love Scott Cunningham, right? And nobody sees the problem with that statement. Right. Like they're the same, they were written at the same time, everybody, like same histories, same whatever. Like, right. Um, but we get into this kind of cultural thing where we're supporting certain authors and certain books and we're telling people not to read certain books. And we haven't even read them ourselves sometimes. We're just repeating kind of things that we've been taught and it's not because we're stupid and it's not because we don't think for ourselves it's because there's something about like that's just how culture works and how the human brain works like we can't help it we sort of repeat each other um and that's why i love books and that's why i read everything is so that i can secretly judge people from afar <laughs> over things like that <laughs> not secret anymore <laughs> yeah it's anthropology like i think that tells me a lot more about what people care about than, you know, anything real or objective about witchcraft. Right. Right. Well, I, uh, you <laughs> opened like five cans of worms in that answer that mm -hmm. we could go on for like four hours. I would love to have you back at some point. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. We can um, be friends. Yeah. Let's be friends. Uh, where can people find you? You've got the book coming up next year ish, right? Ish. Yes. So, I am a delinquent and I have not turned the book in on time. <laughs> I must be punished. I am bad. Um, I've actually missed my deadline twice. <laughs> so, and I've just been like, oh, COVID. But really, like, <laughs> I am terrible. Um, so theoretically, um, the book will be done this summer. And then after a book is submitted, it usually takes about a year. So I figure like 2021, somewhere in there. Um, I will have another book out. Um, I am on Instagram and YouTube primarily. Um, don't message me on Facebook because I just won't see it because I'm terrible also. Um, but I love the internet and I'm there and I'm on Twitter. Um, if you Google Thorn the Witch, I come right up. Thorn doesn't have an E on the end of it. I'm the boring kind of thorn. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I think I'm pretty accessible. I think most pagan authors are, even if they seem like they're not. Um, so yeah, and then I'm doing a lot of, um, obviously everything's been canceled this year, but next year when all of the festivals roll over, I'll uh -huh. do a lot of them. 
<laughs> so, say hi, hang out. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so, so very much. Uh, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for listening to the Salem Witch Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find way more at toSalem.com. That is T-O-S-A-L-E-M.com or on YouTube. Please do subscribe to the YouTube channel or the podcast, depending on where this content is coming to you from. Stay weird, witches. I'll see you next time.